Welcome back to the East Career Cast. Today's episode is part two of the collaboration between the Military Committee and the Career Development Committee. My guest today is Dr. Joshua Corsa. Dr. Corsa attended Eastern Carolina University, the Brody School of Medicine. He then did his residency at Orlando Regional Medical Center, followed by a fellowship at Harborview in Seattle. He's now a private practice acute care surgeon, but most importantly for our conversation, a member of the Florida National Guard. Dr. Corso, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Stephanie. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about what kind of led you up to the career in trauma surgery and specifically the career in the National Guard. Uh, it sounds like your first job in medicine was actually as a volunteer EMS provider in high school. Is that right? Yeah, I got my EMT back when I was about 16 or so. I was kind of a little explorer's program through the fire department. Um, really enjoyed it. And so after high school, I joined the Army again as a combat medic. Um, a lowly enlisted guy, um, got out of the army, uh, was a firefighter paramedic for a while and then, uh, decided to go back to medical school in my late twenties. That's awesome. I think a lot of, uh, young medics hope to have the same kind of path that you ended up on. Yeah, I, I've been extremely fortunate to be able to do this. Well, I'm, you know, we're all very fortunate to have the job that we do, but I think you probably worked pretty darn hard to get there as well. <laughs> It's had its moments. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, some people may recognize your name. Uh, your story was kind of all over online after the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting. Um, what was that experience like for you? Well, I tell you, I, I, um, I'm glad I had been in the Army beforehand and had pre-hospital experience. I think that was invaluable facing such a situation. Um, just being able to stay level-headed and triage patients and kind of continue to make forward progress in that situation I, I don't think i would have been nearly as uh as able to handle it had i not had the experiences prior in the military yeah i think uh a lot of us come back home and and view uh critical events with a lot with a much different lens than than we saw it but the your your pre-hospital experience is something that a lot of us don't have is there something in particular you can point to that that made a difference for you that night uh, really, I think in pre-hospital, you have a very limited amount of manpower, very limited amount of resources. And so you, you get very good at making do with what you have and being able to adapt and improvise. And I think having that mindset going in was just indispensable. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, you said in one story I saw that, that that night, that event, made you question your career choice for trauma surgery. How do you feel about it now? Well, it's... Um, it does, but only for a short period of time. Uh, still very fortunate to be able to help so many people in an event like that. Not all of us have the, uh, have the opportunity to, you know, what I call, you know, making uh, such a drastic difference. And unfortunately, uh, I seem to have a fairly black cloud. We had a, <laughs> a very large propane explosion, uh, a multiple shooting in addition to the pulse event. So, uh, well, nothing of that magnitude. I'd certainly had a lot of, a lot of things similar to that. But after a little bit of reflection and perspective, um, I'm certainly glad I'm still doing it. That's awesome. Um, at what point did you decide to go back into the guard? Uh, well, I think a lot of it was just good old Catholic guilt. I had always, <laughs> I had always missed it. I, I loved the military. I loved the military environment. Um, but I had to focus on school and family matters and things like that. And so it just, there wasn't a good time. And I think all of us, once we say something's not a good time, it's very easy 
for it never to be a good time Yeah. and continue to just put it off, put it off, put it off. And I had been doing that. And I finally just said, this is ridiculous. I just need to do it. I, I miss the heck out of it. Now I have a skill uh, that not a lot of people in the military have, as I'm sure you're aware, we're, we're very, very starving for surgeons right now. And um, that coupled with previous previous deployment experience, I just felt uh, it was kind of incumbent on me to get back in. And so I had been in the process of getting back in when the shooting uh, in Orlando happened. Well, yeah, you know, I think you probably hear it a lot. I hear it a lot that when I talk to people about my experience, particularly deployment, the thing I hear from trauma surgeons all the time is, man, I wish I did that. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of regrets in life, but that's, that's one of them is not joining. So part well, of the, it's certainly never too late. Um, yeah, just cause you think you're old enough doesn't mean that you actually are Yeah, it's, uh, never too late to get back in and serve. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the process of the, getting into the national guard and in particular the ways that it's different from the reserve. So the national guard, each state has its own, right? Correct. Um, so the National Guard, you kind of wear two hats. Uh, you have the federal mission, um, which is where you go out, you deploy, go to combat zones, you train to be ready to deploy. And then secondarily, you have the state mission, which is what people traditionally think of the National Guard and more of your disaster, your relief, your hurricanes, forest fires, um, civil disturbances, things like that. And so we kind of do both of those for the past uh, three years, I've deployed anywhere from two days to a month at a time for hurricane relief in the state of Florida um, under the state end of things, um, which is something that the reserves don't have the opportunity to do. Right. And you have to, in order to join the National Guard, you have to find a state that has a mission that you can fit, correct? Yeah. So most physicians... Um, in the National Guard or what we call 62 Bravos, which is basically a general medical officer. And that can be filled by anyone from family doctor up to a trauma surgeon or whomever. Uh, if you're a physician, you can fill that role. And so I'm a battalion surgeon, which means I'm in charge of the healthcare readiness of about four to 500 soldiers, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, depending on the size of the battalion. And then also uh, the training of the 40 to 50 medics we have in that battalion. And so you uh, joined the Florida National Guard, but live in Washington, correct? Yeah, I was, uh, I joined when I was in residency. Um, and the battalion that I joined is an infantry battalion, which is uh, the guys with uh, the weapons that go out and have direct act, direct contact with the enemy. Um, and they hadn't had an actual physician in their unit for 13 years. Wow. Um, they have been functioning with a very good and very dedicated physician's assistant, but they haven't had an actual physician for a long time. And that includes three, de uh, three combat deployments. And while I did move to Washington last year, I, I love the unit I'm with. Um, and there's still a lot of work to do. I, I don't think it would be right leaving them until I've got them kind of set and on the right track. And more importantly, find someone to replace me. Ever the servant you are. Yeah, I don't know about all that. Well, it's purely selfish. I mean, I, I love my soldiers to death. Uh, they keep me young. They keep me challenged. And it's one of the high points of my month is getting to fly back and work with them. That's awesome. But you but you highlight that you know, to be in a, in a guard role, you do have to have a little bit more flexibility. Very much so. Um, in the reserves, it's much easier to conduct with your practice. 
uh, you're able to miss the weekend drills, substitute it with conferences or other training and things like that. The guard, which is where all of the um, combat arms in the reserve component are, so all of your, your tanks, your infantry, your things like that all reside in the guard. And it's much more rigid. You have to be there every month. And there's not a ton of flexibility. And the reason for that is because we all function as a unit, as a team. And when you start having people not show up, you can't really train as like you fight and train as a team. Right. So in your mind, what's the primary advantage of the guard? For me, um, the one thing I didn't want was to do the same thing on the weekends I do during the week, and that's go to a hospital environment and do the same thing just wearing different clothes. I wanted to interact with the soldiers, with the end user, and really work with them and train them because I remember what it was like when I was an 18, 19-year-old medic, just a private, had no idea what was going on. And for me, I found a lot of satisfaction being able to do that. And on a completely selfish level, being with the infantry allows me to do a lot of things I wouldn't be able to do at the hospital. We're going out shooting anti-tank weapons (laughs) and hanging mortars and you know, I, I do a lot of fun, more army-oriented things that I would not have a chance to do otherwise. Yeah, that's um, that is not what I do on any kind of regular basis. Just in case there was any and, question about that, it's um, there's a, a, a small contingent of actual surgeons or 61 Juliets, uh, general surgeons in the guard. There's about 20 of us uh, that fill this role, and we're trying to get them. Um, to be able to deploy more and with the reserve. Um, and I was kind of the test subject for that, and it went incredibly well. Yeah, so tell us about, you were recently deployed. Where, uh, can you tell us where you were? Sure, I was over in Afghanistan. I uh, just got back last month. Well, welcome home. What was that like? What was that job like for you? I, uh, yeah, I don't want to say that it was a wonderful experience, because anytime you uh, go to a combat zone, it certainly got a, it's pluses and minuses, um, terrible experiences. But I, um, this was something called the ghost team, uh, which is the golden hour offset surgical treatment team. And what we do is mainly support special operations, which are the green berets, the Rangers, things like that. And whenever they do a mission, that's more than an hour flight away from a traditional FSP or forward surgical team. They call on us and we will either set up, uh, very mobile, very forward um, surgical capability. Or on this recent deployment, we would actually go out on the missions uh, with the Green Berets and set up what we call a damage control resuscitation, where you've got a surgeon with a Reboa, the ability to uh, control junctional hemorrhage and things like that to be able to temporize until they're able to get back to a full surgical capability. Yeah, that's, um, as a person who who sat in the role three and waited for uh, you guys to do your job. I was extremely grateful that there were folks like you out there um, who were willing to be, to be so close to the fight. It's a, it's a completely different mindset than uh, traditional surgery. And you have to make your peace with good enough being good enough. And if, to be able to just stop the bleeding, keep the patient warm and evacuate as you're able. Um, we were able to hold on to patients for as long as three days if needed. Um, and the team was usually myself, a CRNA, a nurse, and a medic, in addition to the uh, Green Beret, the 18 Delta medics, who in of themselves are absolutely superlative healthcare providers. Absolutely. They're, they are superheroes in my mind. Yeah, without a doubt. So you mentioned that your pre-hospital experience um, prior to becoming a physician 
really helped you in your experience at Orlando. Did your experience in Orlando in any way feed back to this recent deployment? Um, fortunately, no. Oh, um, we didn't have, <laughs> it's good in that we didn't have a lot of mass casualties. Yeah. It's, um, we had a, a number of situations where we had four or five patients uh, injured at once. But that's no different than I'm sure like Las Vegas or Orlando or anywhere else uh, where you have a shooting on a street corner and have a number of you know, injured patients come in at once. Right. It's about as routine as multiple patients can be. Uh, the advantage is um, our, our technology and our armor is so good now that the vast majority of what we saw was uh, extremity or junctional hemorrhage rather than your traditional truncal or abdominal injuries. Right. Yeah, I... Um... I think I felt as much like an orthopedic surgery resident as I did a general surgeon a lot of times over there. And yeah, I mean, very and much I mean, so. And I mean that in the best way possible. I learned immensely. I, I, I think I broadened my practice. I broadened my skill set as much by, by being a second set of hands to an orthopod as I did anything else. Oh, indeed. And being able to function in such an environment is kind of just a, a self-perpetuating feedback loop. Uh, I'm, I'm much better now at operating in austere conditions which will help me in my civilian practice, which will make me better for my next deployment. And it all just kind of uh, synergistically works together. Yeah. I feel I, I've only been the one time, but I feel like, it, you know, each time you go, you feel a little bit stronger. And each time you come back, you, you bring a new tool home. And, you know, that's exactly why we are broadening our military-civilian partnerships and exactly why, you know, folks in the reserve and the guard uh, are immense assets to their civilian practices at home. I agree. And as you mentioned, the partnerships, I think that your guard and reserve surgeons uh, bring a ton to the Army, being that we do it every day. Military bases are spectacularly safe. And so a lot of your active duty military physicians, uh, they don't see a lot of trauma unless it's during their training right before deployment. And hopefully we'll be able to uh, kind of fix that and fill that gap with more and more uh, civilian partnerships. Yeah, absolutely. So what is your day-to-day -day like um, in your civilian world? Um, I wear a lot of hats. Um, my main <laughs> one is I'm a trauma acute care surgeon at a level two trauma center, a 600-bed hospital. Um, we see not a ton, about 2,500 traumas a year. A uh, vast majority of what we do, I think, like most places, is acute care surgery. And we do 12-hour uh, shifts. And then in addition to that, I'm the medical director for our county search and rescue as well as for our uh, county SWAT team. That's excellent. In what way do you feel like your participation in the Guard feeds back into those roles? Uh, I think it's, um, it's one and the same. I wear a different colored uniform, but a lot of what we do, whether it's now functioning with the aircraft and hoisting people out of, uh, out of the mountains or, again, um, doing uh, high-risk warrants with the SWAT team. It's all very similar to, uh, to what I just did, uh, finished doing over in Afghanistan. Wow. If you, if you had the ear of somebody who uh, you know, could actually change military medicine tomorrow, what would you tell them you think we should do? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I mean, so what's, what's one thing based on your experience in the Guard that you think would make a big difference to the average general surgeon? Well, um, I can give you a few, and I, I may be about to say something that's very unpopular, um, <laughs> okay. but I, I believe that the way that the Army is moving, at least on the active duty side, um, by starting to look at what do we really need to fight a war? 
what specialty, what specialties, specialties, excuse me, do we have to have in order to function in a combat environment? And the, they're really refocusing their effort on general practitioners, internal medicine, emergency medicine, and surgeons, because that's what we're going to need. At the end of the day, the Army has to fight and win wars. Right. And they can't do that if they don't put enough emphasis on the people they are going to have to go downrange. And I like seeing that renewed emphasis, and I like seeing the more cooperation with the civilian and military partnerships. It's, it's hard. Um, I'm in a guard unit, which is infantry by nature, and sometimes getting them to see the, the um, value in medical training and getting my medics the training they, they need is tough. I think that's a big uphill battle is getting everyone to appreciate how much we matter, especially how much, how much my medics matter and getting them the tools they need to succeed. We're all, we're all part-timers and we don't do this all the time. You know, as surgeons we do, but a lot of our ancillary staff, our lab techs, um, on this last appointment, three out of my four scrub techs, they only do this on the weekends mm. and they don't have a lot of opportunities to practice on their craft. So we need to make our weekends count more and make our training count more with, with less of the very burdensome online training requirements and paperwork and just focus more on what we need to actually do our jobs and be able to succeed in a fight. I don't think you've said anything controversial at all. And I think a lot of people would agree with you. And, and maybe it's, uh, you know, now that your unit has a, a highly trained, highly skilled uh, and experienced position in the role, maybe you'll, you'll be able to make a difference there. Um, well, I, I certainly don't hold back for better or worse either. So I think it's, it's well, I, I guess suffice it to say, neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> and and probably neither do, do the most of us. It's kind of part of our nature as trauma surgeons, I think. Oh, and we, we forget sometimes that as officers, we're also leaders. And we carry the same weight and the same cash as anyone else in a similar rank. And I think we do a disservice to ourselves as surgeons by not accepting leadership roles and not being more vocal in advancing military medicine. I the reserve you're... and even the guard is, is dying for leaders right now. They can't fill, you know, they can't fill half their command spots because the providers don't want to do it. And I think the more we yield that role, the more we're just going to be just watching, watching military medicine go by without us or we're just spectators without us. Exactly. Um, so I think we can do a much better job at being proactive in that as well. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, a lot of us come out of training as majors, you know, and we exactly and we think being a major is no big deal. Um, but to the rest of the military, that's that, that carries something that means something. And a lot of us um, I won't I won't go so far. I won't say abdicate that responsibility, but we just don't even know what to do with it. And we don't realize this, the, the power that we do or the, the, the clout or whatever the word is that we do have that we're wasting potentially. Oh, exactly. And we, we could do better you now as, as a united front as surgeons banding together and again, advocating for what we think is the best care. Well, well, good for you for doing it for your unit. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, if say, say, you know, this podcast is, Directed at the East membership, so young okay. young trauma surgeons and those in training to be. So for those listening who've heard what you said and say, man, that sounds awesome, what do they do? First of all, do it. Don't think <laughs> about it. Just do it. You, you won't regret it. Um, and 
even if you say this is just a terrible idea and it's not for me, after three years, you can leave. Um, but I don't think that many people are going to get into it and say, man, this is terrible. I hate it. Um, go talk to a recruiter. Um, it's, we've got them everywhere, guard and reserve. Go talk to them and see what's out there, see what opportunities are out there, and go from there. It's, um, it's an arduous process. It's the military. The military loves paperwork. <laughs> and I would say more than anything else is don't get discouraged. The process can take six months to a year. You're going to fill out the same forms three or four times. The security clearance alone is, I believe, 54 pages long. Um, but it's worth it if you can just get through all of that and stay motivated. Um, yeah, I can't say enough good things about it. Just talk to a recruiter and if you can talk to someone who's in it and ask the personal questions, you know, that you have that a recruiter may not be able to answer because they're obviously not surgeons. Yeah. Well, for anybody listening, his name is Joshua Corsa. Oh, call me. <laughs> Uh, call me, email me. That's perfectly fine. It's Joshua.Corsa, C-O-R-S-A, at Providence.org. That's awesome. I would be, be glad to tell you anything good and bad and answer any questions you have. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Corsa, thanks so much for taking your time out of your busy day to join us on the uh, East CareerCast. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Well, that concludes our two-part series regarding careers in the U.S. military and the Reserve and Guard units. If you'd like to follow up on anything you've heard in this two-part series, you can find me on the East Find a Member page. You can also search the East membership by branch and type of service if you'd like to reach out to a service member. As always, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at SMStrite. Thanks for listening. See you next time.